Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Got a few conferences coming up, uh, March, uh, February 8th through the 9th in Sacramento, a conference on sexuality and gender. You can attend live if you're in the Sacramento area or attend virtually if you have an internet connection. We also have, of course, our Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon conference in uh, March, March 31st through April 2nd. Um, all the information for that conference, the Theology in the Raw conference, is on my website, pressandsprinkle.com. And the info for the sexuality conference um, and other events like webinars and so on are at centerforfaith.com forward slash, wait for it, wait for it, forward slash events. That's right. Just go to centerforfaith.com forward slash events. My guest today is David Bennett. David is uh, smarter than all of you and myself combined. He has a couple degrees from Oxford University, a master's degree from St. Andrews under uh, where he studied under Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, and he's pursuing his doctorate at back at uh, Oxford University. He's from Sydney, Australia. He was a uh, atheist gay activist who met Jesus in a pub, wrote a book about it called The War of Loves. I would highly encourage you to check out that book if you've not read it yet. It's an amazing book. And he's an amazing guy. He's a friend. He's a scholar. And he is a uh, wildly charismatic, Anglican-ish, Catholic-ish Christian who defies all the boxes and stereotypes. Please welcome back to the show, the one and only David Bennett. Hey, David. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. It's been, what, a year now? At a least year, a year. Year and a half. I think it was shortly after you released your book, wasn't it? Like maybe six months after or something? That's been a, yeah, been out a then, couple years. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if we were locked down or if it was way before that. But, you know, in these times, our memories are a bit... <laughs> what day is scattered. it? What year is it? Well, I... Uh-oh. I, uh, I, you know, I don't like to have on guests too many times. Like I, I like to diversify and everything, but every month I'm like, I, I would be very happy with you being like a monthly reoccurring guest. <laughs> that, that kind of violates the norms of podcasting. But I just, I so, I don't know. I just love talking to you. I love your voice. I love your nuance. I love your, you, you're not, you can't put David Bennett in a box. Like you just challenge and encourage people across the spectrum and i love that about you so anyway thanks for making time Um, my pleasure thanks for having me and thanks for what you do as well i think you know the center that you've started and everything is something i recommend to so many people because it just hits that that target for me so it's wonderful to be part of it yeah yeah thank you you look well you look happy are you happy right now i mean because there's a a lot of stuff to not be happy about in this world we're living in but I think, um, yeah, I've, I've finally got able after two years of being locked down in the UK and not being able to get back to my family. It was quite tough. The Australian government locked the country down yeah. and you couldn't even come back as a citizen, which wow. I think being in the UK, it had a psychological effect on me. It was pretty rough to like go through the last two years with all of its yeah downsides yeah. <laughs> and then be, be kind of you know, isolated from your family, from your support structure, yeah. trying to do a doctorate. It was not easy. So I've definitely had some some difficult moments, but I'm kind of on the other side of it. 
able to be with the family, have a good Christmas, you know, mm-hmm. refill the tanks, which has been yeah. really brilliant. And I'm just here looking out at Sydney Harbour, hard oh. life, you know. Um, <laughs> so I'm grateful to have to have that respite. Um, and yeah, just I think in this time we're all auditing our lives and saying what really matters, what are the foundational things we we need to value and invest in. And I think one of the really interesting things for me has been how important family is, um, mm. as well as a celibate gay Christian. Like, I've really needed to just be with my family, yeah. and and friendship helps, and it's good. And but there's that kind of kinship need when when the world is in crisis. Yeah. It, yeah. So it's taught me a lot about my own voice and my own message with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think there'll be some different, yeah, some different content coming eventually as I reflect on the last two years. Um, yeah. I was joking with a buddy of mine who's about my, I'm 46. We both yeah. looked at each other. I think it might've been, um, maybe not a buddy of mine. I think it was maybe Russell Moore or somebody on the podcast recently. And we looked at each other and said, can you imagine if we had Twitter when we were teenagers, <laughs> the stuff oh. I would have to go back and scrub. Like I would have been canceled like <laughs> 10 times old. Like, Oh my word. I mean, 10 years ago. I mean, I'm glad I got on Twitter like 10 years ago and not like before that, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other thing that's been really tough in this season is the conversion therapy laws, um, one that was passed in Victoria. Uh, And obviously I'm against conversion therapy. That's why you're a side B Christian because you think conversion therapy is a false option. That shouldn't be the way. Right. that there is damage done in that context of, but then when conversion therapies turn back on you as a celibate gay Christian, you're told teaching celibacy is a suppression practice by your state or your government, which is probably going to come all around the kind of Western world. Is it they're casting the umbrella, like any kind of side B view of things is going to be labeled conversion therapy? Like, are they using that label so broadly? It's, to- it's, it's the fact that I even have to make that distinction. Like, it's the fact mm-hmm. that I even have to say, as a gay man, if I choose to be celibate and follow the traditional teaching of scripture in the church, that I am suppressing myself. Mm-hmm. And then if I try to teach anyone about that individually and help them in prayer, like, I mean, I don't really pray over people anyway. It's because I pray with someone that's in, like, wants to pray about that and who needs support. <laughs> it could just be like a gay mate that I meet, you know, that I, friend, that I just, you know, is, is journeying. Just to know that that could be turned back on me as a suppression practice. It's just traumatizing. Mm. Like, it's like deeply scary, you know, and I think for a lot of straight people in the church, like, oh, well, I'm never going to do that. I'll just get on with, I might believe what the Bible teaches, but I don't need any pastoral ministry. I'm not a gay person, so it's fine. And like, that can just be like really tough, that kind of indifference you sense in people like, well, yeah, conversion therapy is wrong. So it should be outlawed. It's like, well, conversion therapy should be discouraged and called out for what it is, Mm -hmm. but you don't just remove something by banning it. You remove it by producing a better alternative that works and that is humane, that is loving, that is biblical, you know? (laughs) Um, so yeah, that, that 
stress has been tough for me. And then mm. on top of that, watching many of the churches attached to the UK, like Church of England, going with gay marriage and just like mm-hmm. watching dominoes fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then seeing the scandals in the evangelical world. It's a lot, mm. I think, for especially the gay celibate community that's trying to trust the church, you mm. know, that is orthodox and yet constantly going through that trust being broken, seeing our own weakness as human beings as well. Mm-hmm. And then having secular states totally disregard us and not consult us in laws that actually directly affect us mm-hmm. is it's, it's like, it's really hard to articulate how yeah, hard that is. That's wild. What yeah, would, I don't know what you think, Preston, well, like here, whether I'm being overly dramatic or whether <laughs> I'm interpreting that in the wrong way. I just, I think, I just don't know how to respond. I feel like overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of, yeah. I mean, no, I think you have every right to be, that's, that, yeah, no, I don't have any, my, my only thing with the, even, here's what I wrestle with, with the, with the scandals and evangelicalism, kind of like if you thought about American evangelicalism and just you let your mind wander like what picture would come up in your head and how much of that is shaped by a really well it's I don't know I, like like the scandals are you know these big leaders who are publicized and everything but there's there are this is just anecdotal so like like you I go and speak at a lot of different churches some of them are big churches five ten thousand people stars and lights and fog machines and all this stuff. And I, I'm just in my anecdotal experience, I I come across godly, humble, non-misogynistic, gracious, forgiving, confessing leaders of mega churches all the time. They're, they're not known. They're not, they don't write books, whatever. But like I go from church to church, you know, and I see all this great stuff. And then, when people think American evangelicalism or even mega church and the platform and all this stuff, it's just nothing but negativity. And I don't want to downplay the reasons why they have that view. I mean, I have the same stuff. I'm like, gosh, yet another leader fell. But I wonder how much of that is shaped by the fact that we always hear about the scandals. Those are front and center. We don't hear about the pastor who's been, who grew a church out of a living room and now he's got 5,000 people coming and he just, he's, he walks around and talks to people he knows hundreds of people by name even though he's at a mega church like i'm thinking one in particular that i spoke at recently and like you know he might write a book someday but he's not well known out he's not that well known outside of his circles and stuff and there's just a lot of that so i i I battle with you i battle a a a certain level of pessimism like my gosh you know yet another one fell or just like or you just hear stuff and you look at social media and or, you know, I was, I was driving today. You'll appreciate this. I got to pull this up. <laughs> I was going to tweet this, but I'm like, do I want to feed the machine? Let's see if you can see this. What does it say? God guns Trump. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't even. Yeah, I just, I can't. I just, like, how, you know, it's this whole populism that, that hijacked the German Protestant church. Yeah. It's like, how has the American Protestant church not learned the lessons of Germany? Like, as a theologian in the 21st century or any Christian thinker of any kind that has any knowledge of history, you know, beyond year 12 or whatever, how, 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 I, I, I'm stumped. 
Yeah. I'm absolutely, I don't have words. I think when Biden got elected, I just broke down. And part of that was the relief that Trump wasn't there anymore on some level, but could, could not leverage his voice. The other was just deep despair about the whole thing. Yeah. What, what the United States has become. Yeah. This populist kind yeah. of pseudo Christian machine that is not reflective of the Lord Jesus Christ at first century. Yeah. Jewish carpenters become a moralistic, weird populist, like Trump equals Christianity. Like how, like yeah. it, I, it blows my mind. I just, I, I understand that like it's complex and that the American story is complex, but it also is. racism and just yeah. everything I, like from an Australian perspective <laughs> and a British perspective, it's just really tough yeah. to watch. I don't know how much Americans understand the effect they're having on the rest of the world Yeah, that shares some of it, their similar values. And I'm not wanting to like, you know, just, I mean, I, I love the United States. I have tons of American friends. I've received so much from people, you know, that are, are U S based, but I just find myself perplexed. I, again, I don't, yeah. other than don't commit idolatry, like yeah. political idolatry is basically what's happening. And how does the church resist that? I, I, I would say, the question. yeah, for me, it's, yeah. it doesn't seem new because I was raised in, let's see, born 76. So like the whole Reagan era, I mean, Reagan was, you, if you're a Christian, you vote for Ronald Reagan. And that was just, the, in the culture, you know, I, it's definitely magnified with the Trump era. And in the last, I mean, since 2016, the polarization has gotten way more intense. And so you do have the extremes where people are completely syncretistically wedding their, their political allegiances with their allegiance to Christ or try, obviously that's not possible, but that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it has gotten worse, but for me, I don't, it has always been there on some level. Um, But I will say again, I mean, or like, so like not just you, but like anybody listening, like when people think of that perception are they thinking of names and faces in their local church? Maybe some of them are, but I do think a lot of this is living and exacerbated on social media. I mean, what 7% of the U S population is like active on Twitter. And yet you go on Twitter and you think that represents the whole. And I talk to conservatives, moderates, liberals, and the average person that maybe voted this direction or that direction doesn't, doesn't, doesn't I don't know. Like I've never met a I've met tons of Trump voting Christians. I've never met a single one who was like, "Yay, January 6th. That was awesome." Or even like anything but. That was absolutely hideous and horrible. <laughs> but then you go online and it's like, "No, Republicans are like for January 6th takeover or something." It's like, "What? I don't the, in the real world on the ground, I just think that I don't know. This might be my, my I don't know. That's just totally opinion. Just anybody can dismiss it, but it, it seems like the average person in the pew is not as bad. <laughs> and again, I'm here, the one who voted for Biden, one who voted for Trump. Um, not every Trump voter is a flaming racist. Not every Biden voter wants to kill babies in the womb in mass, you know. Um, I don't know. Like, I, 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 I just wonder if there is a more nuanced, quiet, hopefully majority. Maybe this is my optimism. <laughs> 
Having said all that, David, you are, it's still bad. It's, it's, there is a discipleship crisis in America right now. So I want to come full circle and say, no, what, you're, you're tapping onto something that's indisputable. Um, I just, I do think there is, you've mentioned it, a little more complexity when it comes to real names and faces, you know, in the church, but maybe, I don't know. I hope I'm right, but maybe I'm not. <laughs> you know, the, th- the thing that I just turned back to is we have an amazing gospel and let us yeah. not compromise it with this, these idolatries. And look, idolatries are idolatries for a reason. They're attractive. They have a bait to them. Um, they, they promise you things that they can't deliver. Like Trump can't deliver. Right. Biden can't deliver. Yeah. Jesus Christ delivers us the full deal. And, <laughs> and, and it's not just like, oh, the third way. It's not just like, oh, we synthesize to get to the Hegelian third. You know, I'm not, <laughs> there are radical elements to Jesus's kingdom, you know, but they never seem, the world never seems to be able to produce that. And I think one of the things I find really bizarre about America is they really think the president can be like Jesus, like as if there's no sense of like anti-idealism of like, of course, these leaders, it's like, no, they must be like Trump must be the anointed Cyrus or like, what I'm like, where is this coming? Like, you know, and then like seeing apologies from Bethel and being charismatic myself, it's just been absolutely crushing to see the misuse of the spiritual gifts and, you know, already in the UK, it's tenuous about how we receive, you know, American based materials from different churches like Bethel, like Bethel's had a big influence in the UK. And then when they shifted to being super Trump or like at least some of their leaders kind of using their platform towards that, I, yeah, it was like, again, another huge crushing blow and them not understanding the global church, you know, and being so domestically ingrained in the American context. And I understand, like, there's also a lot of stuff from the extreme left of being very Mm anti-Christian, biblical ethics Mm -hmm. on some key issues. But I think one of the things I'm really grateful for is the grace to have had the education I have. Mm -hmm because it's helped me see through a lot of that mm-hmm. and to see that abortion is really complex. You mm. know, the ethics of abortion is really complex. Um, that these issues we simplify in the public sphere that become like lightning rods, mm-hmm. that's not actually helping us become an ethical society. That's actually depriving us from the nuance we need to coexist peacefully within a democracy where you have very different opinions on how things Mm -hmm. should be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's pushed me more into the fact that classical liberalism, Mm -hmm. you know, is meant to prize this system where you can have radical difference and coexist and you can renegotiate that every election Mm -hmm. um, without a sense of vengeance, you know, Mm. Rhode Island, there's a great book, Mere Civility by Teresa Bejan at Oxford about the history of democracy and how actually evangelicalism originally was the kind of harbinger of democracy in the sense of this civility, this capacity to live with difference Hmm. um, and all try to find um, a democratic consensus and to move forward. 
So, mm. you know, you can have people who are anti-abortion and who decide I want to adopt my child out. And that's seen as a legitimate option that isn't threatening other people like I want to have an abortion. You know, let these ideas compete yeah. within that democratic system and, and as Christians, we put our foot behind adoption and we put our foot behind, you know, caring, like for women to have as much autonomy as possible mm -hmm. with the reproductive reality of their bodies without, you know, you know, having necessarily to just go down the abort lifestyle abortion route. Like there's all these things. It's like, why is this not front and center? Mm. Why are we not able to have this nuance um, with different, very like thorny ethical issues? I, I, that's the thing that I just keep coming back to is like, I want to yeah. see political leadership that can facilitate, facilitate a new civility. Yeah. Well, I, um, that, yeah. Have you yeah, read uh, Jonathan Heights, Jonathan Heights work? Uh, the Righteous Mind. Yeah. So that, that once I read that, I was like, Oh, it all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not rational creatures. Like we're, we're tribalistic. Effective. Our yeah. intuitions are driving our belief. We rationalize stuff after the fact. We believe what we desire to believe. And there's this looping effect of like, we want to believe this so that we find reasons to do it. And then it just like reconfirms. And then then we have tribal allegiances that reward us when we applaud the tribe. It's just, it's so complex, the nature of belief. So it, it's, it's discouraging because as a fellow academic, it's like, no, I want to rationalize people out of this ridiculous way of thinking, whatever that might be. And it's like, it just, it's more complex than that, you know? It is. And, but I do find it interesting that, the, yeah, the miscibility, the, the thesis in that book, looking at how what we prize as our values in the kind of West does yeah. seem to come from evangelicalism, and yet we are blaming evangelicalism as the problem. Huh. And it's really interesting. Every two hundred years, you get this cycle where something, you know, like a cultural movement like evangelicalism reaches its height and then it collapses and becomes an enemy. And you see that happening over and over again. So it's interesting really? what will come, what will come out as the next two hundred years. Like what will be the new Christian movement? You know, that defines the age and informs political life. And that's my question because I think we're at a point where it's some, something new has got to emerge, and it's going to take twenty or thirty years at least of kind of the collapse and the, you know. Hmm. Um, but like this has happened before. We're not in some like new moment. Hmm. Like there's always been the Catholic Church with the Reformation in the 16th century, you know, and now we're seeing the, you know, the kind of collapse of Protestant evangelicalism at the end of the Reformation, like kind of cycle. <laughs> we're hmm. seeing that it doesn't work as well as we thought as Protestants. So one of the things I've been searching for is resources that are within the Christian tradition that can help me be the Christian I need to be in this moment to try to find that the new thing that was really just the old thing. You know? What have you found? And kind of that. I think for me, it's been, um, it's been rediscovering what it means to be Catholic as a Christian. And I don't mean that as a capital, I don't yes. mean that as capital C, but a small C Catholic rather mm -hmm. than just reformed. I would say I'm still reformed. I like, don't believe in the Catholic doctrine exactly of justification and works. Like I would be more monogistic and say mm -hmm. participation happens after salvation, not mm -hmm. as salvation that like it's a monogistic 
thing from God that's direct, but that there is then a life of participation. The sacraments have become incredibly important to me Mm. in suffering and lament and disappointment and the crushing, like, weight of everything, the layers, intersectional layers of being gay, the, the layers of the cultural crisis we're in and theological crisis we're in, hmm. just all of the things really. Um, the Eucharist has become incredibly important to me as a, a place I can just know Christ hmm. and know him bodily. Like, you know, and I've, I've had a few really amazing mystical experiences taking Eucharist in Oxford in an Anglo-Catholic church. Wouldn't say that I'm Anglo-Catholic, but <laughs> um, there's something about that tradition that has resources that evangelicalism yeah. has thrown the baby out of the bathwater with. And I, that's been really helpful. Um, and just the way that Anglo-Catholic people are just so real about their humanity and how terribly they fail all the time and even to a fault where you're like, come on, like you're meant to be like victorious in Christ and like declare the word, you know, and they're like, yeah, well today you know, like, I'm all over the place. So I'm just holding on for Eucharist, you know, and it's kind of like, there's something wrong with that, but there's also something really right with it. And this like just total transhuman messiness. And that's actually part of the incarnation. It's part of the way the word is ordering our human mess and we have to be real about it with mm-hmm. him and finding those spaces where we can do that safely. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, the, there's something growing there for me of really, what does it mean to be Catholic? It, it means to embrace the full story. Mm-hmm. As evangelicals, we only have the beginning. Mm. We're trying to just always go to the beginning, like Bible, Bible, Bible. It's like, yeah, but how is the Bible being received Mm -hmm. into time in the various challenges of 2,000 years of history Mm -hmm. for the Christian gospel? And then how does that help us now? And so I think that's where I've gone back to Richard Hooker, the reformer, who who tried to find a way through religious wars in, in England that were tearing the country apart. And his theology was a kind of attempt to move into a middle way via media where there was still some respect for the, like, Catholic tradition, but there was also, like, a correction. And it was a resistance from the Puritans and it was a resistance from, like, just people who wanted to follow the Pope. Um, And he had that kind of triad of scripture, reason, tradition. Um, A lot of people criticise that, especially Bartians, because they're like, there is no natural theology, there's just Christ. And I'm like, so you can just say whatever Christ is then. There's no way of testing, you know, the moral nature of who Christ is. Hmm. Like Christ is also the creator and he created a world that has a meaning and the created order matters. And like in my doctoral work, created orders become really that there's some divine rationality in the world. And obviously it's through Christ that we access that divine rationality, you know, that helps us discern what to do morally, not just beyond like an injunction in the Bible, like thou shall not kill or, you know, but actually when it gets, we're in the rough and ready, like trenches of life. Right, right. Yeah, there I, is this deeper texture to deal with these situations. I'm hearing some some scraping or something when you're when you're Oh, sorry. I'm not sure what it is if it's your microphone okay. or Yeah, that may be okay. How's that? Now? Okay, cool. Sometimes I move my hands and it Yeah, 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 you're fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> uh, can you unpack? I mean, this might take us into your dissertation which you just are on the 
latter end of finishing, which I'm super stoked about, the created order and natural law and... Yeah, can you can you expound on what you've learned over the last few years on that? It's something that I've been more curious about recently. I wouldn't say I feel like the more I know, the less I know about this and I like think it's a really charged area of theology. But I felt I came back from St Andrews where I was obviously exposed to a really intense Barthian mm-hmm. like approach to to knowing truth. Um and that it was all like top down through Jesus, like Christocent- Christocentrism bordering on Christomonism, like kind of like God is Christ and that's it. Like, okay. yeah, the Holy Spirit just reveals Christ. The Father is just, you know, Christ just reveals himself through Christ. Like, and, and, and then mm-hmm. the world had no meaning outside of Christ. So everything's just Christ to the point where like the whole theological system collapses and when I went back to Oxford and I started reading Augustine, it like healed me. Really? And I was walking around the park and I was like, this world is beautiful. This world was created by God to mean something to us about him. And Christ came to redeem that connection between us, the world and God. And we are the image bearers. We are the Salem in the temple in the image of Christ. And of course it's Christocentric. I'm not wanting to undermine that, but this sense of just like our body, sexual difference, the sacral importance of the body, the world, like incarnation, the texture of, of the good, like the goodness of my physicality Hmm. being located in a world that matters to God and he loves and he died for and not just individual souls that were forensically zapped and will one day be raptured away from this horrible place, but like this God who groans in us for the fullness of what this world could be and that has been revealed in his son. Like that is so much more beautiful to me than this kind of hyper-Protestant collapse. And so I've tried to regain the world (laughs) in my theology and say, well, why has God created us the way he has and created the world the way he has and what is christ doing to restore the breach of the fall that means we live in an alienated way and i think this has environmental impacts and Mm -hmm. i think this also links deeply to sexual ethics this is the irony of the political world is that it's split between environmentalism and sexual ethics i'm like these two things are Mm. directly related Mm. if we see the world as having an importance you know and tom wright obviously has impacted me to some degree because he sees the world as vitally important and that the new creation is a recreation, like a renewing of this creation. And I think he maybe leans too far towards um, the continuity between now and then. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more to say about the discontinuity as well. Like it's what is coming is so much greater as well, but just rediscovering that I think gave me a very different basis for, for why, I have made the choices ethically that I have with my sexuality, but also why the political world just is not something I feel is in any way in the right mm. about how we we steward the creation and how mm. we understand our bodies and, it, and our minds and the relationship between the creation and us. So I think natural theology obviously has a problem. Like I'm not saying that therefore means we can just read 
the creation and know ethically mm-hmm. and morally what to do, which is something we see more in kind of the Thomistic system that I'm a little bit nervous about. I'm not, I'm like, no, 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 we are epistemically fallen and we struggle to read that world. But somehow by Christ, through Christ and in the Holy Spirit, we're re-illuminated mm-hmm. to living in the world according to the way God originally intended it. Yeah. And that that is vitally important for gospel ethics. So there is no bifurcation between kingdom and creation ethics. They are one, you know, yeah. together rather than these two separate things. In Bart, does Bart downplay the create like everything you're saying? I don't I read about a hundred pages of Bart, have some Bardian <laughs> friends. I would I consider myself a like a more of a Bardian New Testament scholar who didn't read a lot of Bart. <laughs> 15 yeah. years ago, you know, uh, so I'll, I'll, I mean, yeah. but I, so does he down? Is he, and I know him and it was a Bruner had that natural law, big debate. Um, so does he downplay the role? Or what, how would he describe creation from what you know? Um, well, I kind of don't agree with Bruner either okay. because Bruner thinks you can see ordinances in creation. Like marriage is an ordinance of creation. It's just obvious. Huh. Like all cultures recognize that. I'm like, well, I don't know. I think that's not radically, like, I'm still with the Bartians and the level of, like, I think the point of contact has been broken between human beings and God. I don't think we can know God through the world. But my interest is more, once we know Christ, that should put us back into the world. It should, you know, mean that point of contact is restored and that, we can start to participate in the grace of God in creation and that our created nature matters. So like I was in a seminar with Douglas Campbell and he said, well, I don't care about this body. Who cares? It's about the resurrection body in the future. So gay marriage is fine. And I'm like, what? Like, like this like radical discontinuity the other way, which was like very Bartian. And I'm looking at like Tom Wright going, you're a little bit too continuous. And I'm looking at Doug Campbell going, you're too discontinuous. Like, why are we not somewhere in the middle where like there's something more coming, but this world matters and our sexual difference matters. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to grapple with that. There's like this weird bifurcation in Protestant theology about the world and its nature and our bodies. And so I'm wanting to push against that. And some of that is regaining some of the Roman Catholic things, looking at Eros and Agape mm-hmm. and that bifurcation of Eros and Agape in how we understand the metaphysics of love, that really there is no such thing as like a er, Agape that's spiritual and an Eros that is bodily. Mm-hmm. There's just love. And mm-hmm. then there's some Greek words for love that might have like various colors or tints to them. Like Eros clearly wants relates a bit more to like marriage and sex, but Eros isn't exclusively in the Greek tradition about marriage and sex. It was about God, knowing God and like being mm-hmm. inflamed with divine love. You know? It has like a like passion really. it has like a passion element to it, depending yeah. on the context. Could be sexual, could be divine, could be mystical, right? I mean, you, you, yeah, and you see in the charismatic movement an, an attempt to regain that. Huh. And then in the reformed world are like anti-eros kind of yeah. ethic. Yeah. And, and, and the charismatics have just like don't have the ascetical maturity to know how to deal with that eros and to <laughs> test it and purge it and direct it in a healthy, ordered way. And the reformed people are like, does it even exist? And there's like this, <laughs> hyper, this hyper-skepticism towards the idea of a celibate gay Christian that could do that, you mm. know? Mm. 
and and that produce or anybody really <laughs> men have to be married because they're these horrible perverse sexual creatures that might just like break at any moment i'm like what on earth and then like you know <laughs> it, it, yeah there's a lot wrong in my opinion with this whole system and i'm like so what do we do how do we reapproach theologically um use so, so but just come back to your question bart does have at the beginning, a bit of a created order theology, but then he turns against it radically at the end. Mm. And it's like, no, and goes the hyper-apocalyptic route with Christology. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just think that's too extreme. Like I read um, various commentators and people say that Bart thought that Jesus was the sacramentum fide, which means the only sacrament. There is no, like taking the bread and wine isn't a sacrament ultimately, like, baptism isn't a sacrament it's all just jesus is the sacrament and these things kind of like represent him to us i'm like no i think when i'm taking communion there's a real presence there's a consubstantiation going on of some kind it's a mystery i can't even forensically explain it but i love that it's a mystery that i is never exhausted by my understanding you know and and i can just enter that sacrament and you know celibacy is a sacrament because I'm living between heaven and earth and I still experience the incapacity to be celibate because of concupiscence. And yet mm. somehow by heavenly grace, I'm able to give myself up and give my body to Christ and experience mm. this incredible intimacy that we're all destined for. And I live in between, you know, marriage represents that reality to the future yeah. and is a sacrament. Like what is a sacrament? It just is something of the in-between heaven and earth space that we do to 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 imitate Jesus um, mm. and his life with the Father through the Spirit. So for me, oh. sacraments have become just so important, like to everything. I'm like, how have we gotten to this place where we just think sacraments are terrible and anti-evangelical? It's like, oh. anyway. So I suppose I'm not really giving you a very like <laughs> thought through explanation of my doctorate here. Yeah. But I, I, these are some of my my new thoughts that I'm trying to gather after the process. And I don't know what you think, Preston, if you have any further questions or things you Uh, want to press. So it's funny, the gap, people sometimes don't realize this. So I, I was a biblical studies guy and then you have theology and the gap between those two disciplines is so much bigger than the average person realize. Especially if you go, if you're an if you do like an American evangelical PhD, they're they're blended a little more. But you go overseas, and it's my friends yeah. that were studying theology under John Webster and stuff. I mean, we we can be in the same room for hours and not understand a word any of us were saying. You know, um, John Webster is more of a dog. I mean, he he would come to our New Testament seminars with his Greek New Testament open, and he could hang with the biblical scholars any day of the week. Um, and we had, we had we had Francis Watson who can hang in the theology. So we Aberdeen blended it a little bit. But I remember being overwhelmed. I remember reading um, is it Catherine Tanner? Mm-hmm. I remember reading God is it God in creation or something? God Trying creation, to read. Yeah. You know, here I am towards the end of my PhD. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm not an idiot either. I'm like, hey, okay, it's a theologian, and I had such a hard time. I'm like reading this and just. And who's the uh, radical orthodoxy guy? Um, John Milbank. Yeah, trying to read John Milbank was like, I feel like I'm reading Spanish or Portuguese. I mean, this is just so – anyway, all that to say, 
when people like you, you th- actual theologians start talking, I, I'm a student. I, I have nothing to contribute here. No. <laughs> um, here I, do, I would like for you to summarize, like how would you summarize your, your, your dissertation? I mean, you've, you've, been, you've been deep into this topic. What, so what is this topic for, for, for somebody who's listening and catching glimpses and pieces, but like, okay, what, what have you been working on the last few years? I think my doctorate emerges from the lack of representation of gay celibate Christians within Christian ethics more generally. Hmm. And then it's also got another element of like what I've already discussed in terms of systematic theology, like looking at, you know, Christology, natural theology, like the Trinity. There's definitely that behind it, which comes from kind of Sarah Coakley's work and, um, and Oliver Donovan's work on mm-hmm. kind of resurrection ethics, you know, in the moral order. And then Graham Ward's work, who's the Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford, who is a queer theologian. And he's kind of saying that modernism has produced this um, counterfeit, this parody of the church in terms of intimacy and in terms of erotics. Now, when I say erotics, I don't mean sex. I mean the broader kind mm-hmm. of definition that we've discussed and I think in those three theologians, uh, there are elements of the puzzle to represent gay celibate asceticism, mm. that there is a queerness to gay celibate asceticism, which is trying to critique modernism and say there's counterfeits here, both progressive and conservative, and we're trying to drill down into Christ and his life in Gethsemane, where he says, not my will, but yours be done, where desire is like given up to God and then a different mission is received. So it's what's the mission of desire Hmm. after we give it up, after we ascetically give it to God. And that's really what my doctorate's about, the alternative queerness of Christians giving their bodies up as living sacrifices. That is a queerness that is in many ways challenging to mainstream queerness yeah. in the academy. What it, it, to, to put it in maybe layman's terms, is, is it almost a critique of like an idolatry of sex that exists both in conservatism, the kind of like if a guy doesn't have sex every 72 hours, he's going to turn into a mad rapist and, you know, their wives need to, you know, just make sure they're giving him release two or three times, you know in the purity culture stuff, but then also the secular culture where it's like, no, you're not being you if you're not sexually expressing yourself according to your innate design. Like both of those have a core putting sexual, not sexuality, but sexual expression, sexual behavior, um, kind of a central piece of human flourishing in as much as I'm accurate in what I'm saying there is, are you critiquing that kind of narrative? I am, but I'm trying to dismantle something that has meant the church hasn't produced the theology to actually um, dismantle that problematic system of purity culture and then also of the kind of hyper-progressive just sexual expression is self-expression, you know. Um, So I'm I'm trying to dismantle and then look at how gay celibate asceticism actually helps the church hmm. be itself. Um, and, and why, why, like, why is it that as a gay celibate Christian, I constantly feel like God is trying to say something through us hmm. and we're not being heard. And there isn't the theology to, you know, actually um, to push back and to, to create a different, an alternative 
erotics. Mm. Um, so yeah, that 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 is what my doctor's trying to do. It's called Queering the Queer. How does homosexual celibate asceticism challenge and inform the role of desire in contemporary Anglican theology? Um, and yeah, I just think Anglicanism for me makes sense because I am Protestant on some level, but I'm not extreme. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more deep theology in Anglicanism to deal with this question. Anglican Church has spent a lot of time questioning this, and I really want it to pay off for the, the whole body of Christ, both Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Evangelical, um, outside of the Church of England and Anglican Communion. So trying to do that work, and it's a lot to try to do in 100,000 words. <laughs> um, and, and Augustine obviously plays a huge role because what Augustine does is is find a path through his own his own time where there were similar debates around desire, virginity, celibacy, and the status of of of, of the Holy Virgin. You know, so I'm trying to also draw an analogy between gay celibate Christians and Holy Virgins in the fourth century. And a lot of historical scholars have said that Holy Virgins are queer. They had a queer purpose. They disrupted norms. They threw off oppressive understandings of women where women were basically just, you know, vessels for imperial progeny that could populate the empire's armies. Like (laughs) there was a kind of queer, a breaking open of that norm that was Christian. And I don't think in the secular consciousness there's an idea that Christianity was ever something that actually challenged oppressive um, systems. And I'm wanting to reclaim that and say gay celibate asceticism is actually trying to do a similar thing um, to, to the holy virginity of, of that time. That's so, yeah, that's, yeah, that's my attempt at offering up something that might help the church. It's tough to translate it all to a popular level yeah. ethic, but I'm going to work on that afterwards. I was going to say that <laughs> so, this is pretty pretty f- high up there academically. I would love to see a popular level version of it. I mean, because that, that, it's so important, dude. I mean, it's so neat on so many levels. And you mentioned it, did I catch it in passing that in the last couple of years, maybe since we've talked, like things have gotten harder for side B, celibate, gay Christians um, in, in finding place in the evangelical church? Would that be, I know it's a broad statement, but are you, are you seeing that to be true across the board? Or? I think it definitely has. I think that we've, we've been pretty battered and mm-hmm. we've held up a bit, but I don't know. I think the ACNA, the PCA, the yeah. like more progressive liberal churches, just being, um, just being a kind of trophy or like the thing that is, kind of abused in both both camps is pretty tough um Mm. and it's like everyone just wants you to be an apologetic for their cause Mm. rather than be challenged back you know um and there are really good elements of the church that are embracing gay celibate christians or side b christians um but it's not as big as I'd hope it to be. Yeah. And I think we need more generosity from progressive Christians to say like, to find a way to be, to have solidarity together without betraying our convictions. 
And I think that's a big piece that I want to be committed to. Mm. But it's really tough when it comes down to like, what does the church actually teach at the end of the day? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and the pain that I go through when a church changes its doctrine on marriage is like so intense. Really? Um, are you seeing, are like, you seeing a lot of that in the UK and Australia or more in the UK? Or? In the UK. Yeah. And I think also when churches decide that being identifying as gay is somehow wrong is also mm-hmm. another blow to 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 healthy discipleship yeah so i don't know i think there's so much to say about it i think i'm in a season where i'm just honestly taking a pause yeah. and trying to you know um prioritize my relationship with jesus and not be crushed by those things you know yeah i'm seeing a mixture of i don't i don't i mean in, in one sense like the, the the demands, you know, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender is an acquired taste. We, um, you know, obviously, if you're super progressive or if you're far right, you're not going to be calling us. But our um, demands for our ministry have gone through the roof. Like just, I was like, wow, that's awesome. Um, and, and when I go speak, you know, I feel like that's getting more and more intense. There's more and more people, more and more demands. So that's all encouraging. People are wanting to engage this conversation in a healthy, nuanced way. Um, and I'm really clear and forthright with my understanding of even gay identity, the term gay and everything. And I get, you know, um, and I, so I think I'm making some inroads there. People understanding at least the complexity of language and identity and not that's all. That's really my goal. Just don't have a simplified, Oh, if you say you're gay, that's you're saying that's your ultimate identity. You know, I don't call myself an adulterous Christian or whatever. And it's like, no, let's, let's, let's understand this a little more. So that's encouraging. Now the, there is a discouraging thread is, you know, I've been doing this six, seven years, you know, and, I would love to see churches actually start to take more, more churches take steps to implement and embody actual, um, might be challenging practices to create a family for all people, single people, married people, whatever, including gay celibate people. Um, it's one thing for people to come and listen to a talk and to come back next year and listen again and come back next year and listen again. It's another thing to take steps to implement. And that's where it's it's a smaller percentage of churches that I'm getting emails saying, hey, all right, we've done this, we've done this, we've hired this celibate gay pastor, and we've done this, we've lost some people, we've gained some people, but we're doing this. You know, I'm like, man, that's amazing. But those are, it is a smaller number. Um, the gay identity, so I, I've had more flack. Simply, okay, so I don't know how many tiers of separation this is. Simply speaking at Revoice, which I've done twice. I've gotten more speaking engagements canceled because they found out that I happened to speak at Revoice with no conversation. I could have been speaking at Revoice, critiquing Revoice. Like, I don't even know what I, you know. No, you showed up at Revoice. Revoice, I heard, is liberal or whatever somewhere. <laughs> That's like the most conservative sexual ethics statement. And then I'm done. No phone, nothing. Just like an email where you're canceled or whatever. I'm like, wow, no conversation. Like, can I get some clarity on this? Or what do you mean when you say gay Christian or whatever? And so I feel like that's almost increasing and that's, that's discouraging. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think it's the bunk the bunkering down instinct. When people feel threatened by difference, they bunker down into ignorance and instead of hearing the faithfulness of that of revoice people like myself, yourself, you know. Yeah, it's Unfortunately, I think it's the flesh. I think it's the Pharisee. I think it's mm-hmm. the thing that comes against the kingdom of Jesus. It's always been there. Jesus had to deal with it. They wanted to kill him. You know, they're going to want to kill us. And yeah. fortunately, that's humanity. And it's deeply, deeply, like, disturbing. Yeah. Um, it is a form of um, erasure. Yeah, mm. it's a form of violence. It's um, mm. really, really horrible. But I think Jesus always had... Somehow he rebuked, but he also had his mercy yeah. for those who were like that. And I, I just want to have that mercy. I think it's just really hard to see, though, when I see the impact of it on faithful yeah. gay Christians. That I find that really tough. Yeah. That's when I just lose my mercy and I crack and I say, Jesus, I can't be you. I'm so angry. I, I'm so exhausted. I'm so disappointed. Yeah. Um, help me to... to step forward and i think everyone in revoice we're just trying to step forward we're trying to let god well my prayer is that god would do it (laughs) like (laughs) that god somehow would shift the tide that we need to pray more we need to worship we need to also create a culture where we're supporting each other as side b christians and not gossiping about each other i think that's been a really big issue people in who are side b taking out their own pain on others um, who had maybe got slightly different views within that camp. Right. And I think that's really problematic and we just have to stop that and be yeah. generous to each other. But it's understandable when you've gone through the pain and the trauma and everything. And, yeah, something's got to change, but it's got to, it's going to come from the Lord, mm-hmm. I think, and not from us. We're not able to do it. It's got to be him. And that's my constant prayer is like, but I totally know what you mean. Like I have wanted to speak at Revoice every year. I've been on the speakers list twice, yeah. you know, when it's advertised and then COVID comes and stops me, <laughs> you know, both times. And I've just been desperate to be at Revoice oh. to be refreshed and just drink from that well while it's, you it's know. It's beautiful. I, I love, oh. I, it's, mm. it's one of the most spiritually vibrant I'm not as charismatic as you. I'll just throw that out there. When I go there, though, I can say I'll just, I'll just preach the Bible, and then you will be. <laughs> well, I am. I am charismatic. Theologically, I am. Um, you feel the spiritual genuineness and rawness, and joy and suffering and lament and authenticity. All just the, this this beautifully complex ball of spirituality. You just it's just radiating in the room and the conversations, the people you talk to. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, you, you have, I mean, to me, it's just, and this is something in my talk that I said, like you in 2021, when the conference was last year, you have a, you have a Christian who's gay, who has swat, whole swaths of culture wanting them to celebrate and act, you know, whatever, like engage in a same sex relationship. You have a growing number of churches that are evangelical ish and teaching the Bible and having singing Chris Tomlin songs and they're affirming like you can go, you have churches, you have everything that's pushing you to embrace an affirming theology. And because of your sometimes very, very counter 
several culturals, cultures, reading of scripture. You're like, no, Jesus, because you're Lord, I'm going to give up something that's pretty significant part of my humanity. I'm going to lay at the foot of the cross because Jesus laid down, you know, I'm pre- I don't want to keep going, but like, yeah, to come into a space where they are raising their hands and I know, and, they, and I'll talk to them and say, yeah, this is the first time I've been in a space where I can worship freely, where people know my story and I feel nothing but like just love and embrace and understanding and camaraderie. Like to go like that, I just don't, that just, and they're still committed to the traditional view. Like that, it just blows my mind. And this is what's discouraging for me when people start policing language. And I I don't want to, I had a friend that encouraged me that even as I expressed concern over people policing the language that there are good people on that side that I, I don't want to mock them. Um, and I, so I, I, um, it just, it can be frustrating when I, like you, I see people who are basically going to Fermi cause they're just tired of it. They're just like, what, fine. What, what else do I need to do now? All right, I'm done. I'm just going to forget it. You think I'm liberal? I'm going to go liberal. You know, um, like that's just, that is discouraging to see, already a, a person already on a really narrow road to be told they're not walking a narrow of enough road. That's hard. It's really hard to hear. Yeah. It's really hard. I, I, and I think feel like it always, whenever I do podcasts on these questions, it, there's never enough time to describe yeah, those yeah. layers. But, but I'm just grateful Preston that you're willing to kind of stand with us. Um, and, yeah, I just wish there were a lot more. I wish there was more of a coalition that was public of, you know, the more straight hmm. pastor leader that was like, yeah, no, we're going to foot revoice. We're going to be generous to progressives as well because we understand there's been a pastoral crisis. Mm-hmm. People are just trying to get through their lives. Life yeah. is hard. You know, um, let's yeah. be generous. Let's not play culture war tactics, but here's our ethic. Here are people living it. Right. Here's how we can maybe alleviate some of those layers as a church. Yeah. Let's listen. What are the layers? You know, rather than asking constantly, like, what are the three points that we can do to make our church better place for LGBTQ people? Like mm-hmm. that's important. And we need to answer that question, but it has to be deeper than that. It's mm-hmm. got to be like a real listening mm-hmm. and, and I think the Church of England is actually a good model. They've tried to listen. Um, and I think that there's a lot to learn from that process too for the rest of the church that's mm-hmm. not necessarily Anglican. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Preston, <laughs> it's been a wild two years. I know. Just holding on to Jesus and trying in my own human weakness to yeah, continue with the gospel that we've received. Yeah. David, yeah. I appreciate you, and thanks so much for giving your time again. I, well, let's let's not wait two years to do this again. But uh, <laughs> many blessings on you, the you know the 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 final uh, round here of your dissertation, and I'm excited to see what God does with you in the next five to ten years. Really, thank yeah, you for your voice. Can't wait. Thank you for your friendship. Yeah, I appreciate too, it. God bless. Have a good day. Bye bye. 